Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text for this morning is Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. So you can turn in there in your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. We're beginning our new series this morning on authentic Christianity from Mark chapter 7. Pastor Moody will be preaching on verses 1 to 4 this morning, but I'll read verses 1 to 8 to set a little bit of the larger context for you. So Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the, to the tradition of men. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you very much, uh, Pastor Josh, and uh, thank you for preaching uh, last Sunday. It was wonderful to have you in the pulpit again. As you know, Pastor Josh Maurer is our new pastor of discipleship, and as you can tell from the sermon uh, last week, we're uh, very grateful that he's on the team and looking forward to all the ways that he leads us ahead with discipleship uh, as, uh, uh, the, uh, as his ministry continues to unfold here. It's good to be back with you. Thank you for your prayers. I had what I trust is my last surgery for at least two weeks last Monday, and um, I was grateful for the doctor who was very skilled, and I was back up and running, um, not literally running, but pretty close to it, uh, on Tuesday, and uh, with various meetings with staff and elders and all the rest, and I've even put on some weight over Christmas, which for me was good news. Uh, put on about 10 pounds over Christmas, so I need to make sure as I don't put on 10 pounds every month, that wouldn't be good until spring. You might have twice the pasta by Easter. Uh, and well done for getting to church this morning. I know it was slippery earlier, and um, there's lots of different things going on. We understand some people are concerned about Omicron and staying home, and, and yet uh, our online presence is um, significant uh, here and, frankly, around the country and the world, and um, the Lord's at work here among us as we meet in person uh, this morning. We begin a new series on authentic Christianity uh, from Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. And uh, we're just going to be looking at the first four verses this morning. And we're going to go through uh, that chapter. And uh, we had read out for us the first eight verses just to set some of the context. But we'll be camped in the first four verses. And the message this morning is simply this. Authentic Christianity is not Pharisaism. So we're looking overall at authentic Christianity over the next few weeks, and this morning we're looking at Pharisees, then and now, and we're defining what real Christianity is. Now, when I say authentic Christianity, I'm not using the word authentic 
in the rather technical way that the Canadian philosopher, that a lot of Christian leaders, perhaps some Christians uh, are reading and familiar with, Charles Taylor defines authentic in a sort of technical way about the tendency in contemporary society to focus on the self. I, I'm not using it that, in that way. I'm using it in a more common, everyday kind of way, which is simply what's genuine, what's real, the real thing. And when I say Christianity, I'm not thinking about every possible human-invented religious association. I'm thinking about really following Jesus. So when I say authentic Christianity, what I mean is what, it's, what, what the real way of following Jesus is. And so that's what we're looking at together. And as I say in the message this morning, from the first four verses of Mark chapter 7, it's simply that authentic Christianity is not Pharisaism. And obviously we're going to define what Pharisaism is both then and now as we go through uh, the message as we look at these first uh, four uh, verses. It's a negative. It's a definition by negative. Authentic Christianity is not Phariseeism. And defining things by a negative, what is not, is important. In normal, hum- normal human understanding, uh, for instance, uh, you would say a whale is not a bird. Or not really a fish either. Uh, but it's not a bird. It's, a defi- it's, not, it's not everything you can say about a whale. But it gives some clarity. It's not that. Or, um, and there's a long, long, long um, theological commitment to doing this within um, Christianity, within theological thinking. So um, when we say that God is infinite, that's a definition by a negative. He's not finite. He's not limited. He's limitless. Again, that's a negative. Not limited. Limitless not finite, infinite, um, particularly with relation to the Trinity. There's a long tradition of this called negative theology. We define God by what he's not. Um, the story goes that Augustine, who used this approach, the great Christian teacher Augustine used this approach quite a lot, and the story goes that one time he was walking along a beach and saw a child uh, attempting in his own thinking to pour the whole ocean into a small um, hole in the sand. And the story is that Augustine said to this child, you can't, you can't put the whole ocean into the small hole. And uh, the child is meant to reply, well, neither can you put the whole of the Trinity into a human comprehension. Now, I, I think it's probably made up. I can't imagine a nine-year-old child replying to Augustine like that, but it makes the point. Um, and so a lot of the conversations about the Trinity are um, not three gods, but one God. It's, a, it's, it's trying to define something by what it's not. And Mark here is doing this in his gospel. And I'll show how and why in a moment. Now, in the way he does it. Now, why is this important? Why should we be thinking about this? Let me just give you a, couple, a few reasons why this is important. Number one, first, this is important because if we're defining what authentic Christianity is, what, what could be more important? When we're thinking about the real way of following Jesus, what we're actually talking about is, well, a matter of life and death. What could be more important? We've all got in our mind all sorts of different ideas about what Christianity is. 
from our denominational background, from our church experience, from our Sunday school teacher, from our family, from the way our parents taught us, from what we read, from uh, whether physical books or on the internet. And we've all got different things in our head about what real Christianity is, but if we're wrong, well, it's just a matter of life and, life and death. So it's important. We should listen to this passage and this series about this passage. Um, but then it's also important because it seems that, it seems to me, and this is part of the case I'm going to be making, that when people today reject Christianity, some of the people who are rejecting Christianity are actually rejecting what Jesus rejects. There's a little bit of movement of what's called deconstruction. You may have heard that. People are deconstructing their Christian faith. And sometimes they're deconstructing things that are biblical and shouldn't be deconstructed. But other times they're deconstructing things that Jesus is against. Jesus rejects. And so this defining, and the Pharisees then and now, the message this morning... This defining what it is by what it is not is important also for our witness. When, you, when you're at home, at school, at work, in your neighborhood, and you come across someone who's saying, I'm not a Christian or I'm no longer a Christian because I don't like this, sometimes, not always, but sometimes you can reply, well, did you know Jesus is against that too? He's actually with you in being against that. And so that's important for our witness. It's important for understanding what real Christianity is, for our salvation. It's a matter of life and death. But I think most of all, how could it be more important than either of those two things, you may say, but I think it is. We see, because the goal of preaching, I'm going to preach this evening, uh, in the evening service, on expository preaching. And the goal of expository preaching is not merely information transfer. Uh, That's teaching, and preaching is teaching. But the goal of expository preaching is not merely information transfer. The goal of expository preaching is worship. And because there are so many (laughs) different kinds of Christianity, different kinds of denomination, different movements, left, right, all this stuff of Christendom, Jesus can get lost in it. And, and, and in some ways, the same was true in uh, first century Israel. The, 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 the Gospels all witness to this, and this one does in particular in Mark chapter 7 in terms of these different religious movements at the time. And, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, confirms the Gospels' insights in these ways, an extra-biblical historical source on what was going on. And there are basically, according to Josephus and reflected in the Gospels, three different kinds of movements at the time, religious movements. There were the Essenes. The Essenes were a monastic purifying movement, went off into the desert, separating themselves from everyone else, a sort of monastic, purifying, um, strict, um, that, that kind of thing. And then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were, were a kind of aristocratic, priestly elite whose teaching was centered around the importance of the temple and being a part of the temple and who 
only accepted the first five books of our Old Testament, the Torah, and didn't accept as authoritative the prophets and the wisdom literature. And the Sadducees had that sort of aristocratic, clerical, priestly, elite movement. But they're most popularly of all. We don't think of the Pharisees as popular, but actually Pharisaism, both then and now, tends to be very popular. Most popularly of all was the Pharisee movement, which is a sort of middle-class, lay-led, not particularly clerical, expertise in the Scriptures, the scribes and the Pharisees often went together, Concern for the law, because in their view Israel had gone into exile because they hadn't kept the law. And because of their concern for the law and that God's people wouldn't break the law, they created all sorts of other rules to fence the law so that no one would get even close to breaking the law. And as we'll see, those rules or traditions were viewed by them as authoritative of equal authority as a God's law. And Jesus is other. And so it leads us to worship and fresh renewal of who he is. Well, let's see how we uh, get there from the text. As I say, it's the first uh, four uh, verses of this uh, chapter, and Mark is defining what it really means to follow Jesus by bringing in in his story these Pharisees who he's saying Jesus is not that real Christianity authentic Christianity is not Phariseeism and he does it in these four verses really in three ways the first is uh, by describing them as judgmental and you see that in verse one so he says there now when the Pharisees gathered to him that is to Jesus so they came down to Jesus some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, now that's important to note, they saw, and that is also important to note, they're observing, some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. We'll get to the, 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 the washing in a moment, but they, they were judgmental. So what's going on is the Pharisees had come down from Jerusalem, the center of religious power, and come to the, this nascent early movement around Jesus and were sort of spying on it and then were judging it, judgmental. Now, you may say, I'm getting a lot out of those first two verses, but what you've really got to understand is what's going on in Mark's gospel in context as a whole. So, if you have your Bibles open, you turn with me back to Mark chapter 1. You see that Mark is concerned over and over to identify uh, Jesus. So, he says, Mark chapter 1 verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who Who is he? the Son of God. It's the only time in Mark's gospel where Mark himself declares what he thinks about Jesus. The rest of the gospel, he uses stories about Jesus so that we would come to the same conclusion, that he is the Son of God. This, so, Mark is concerned that we identify correctly who Jesus is. That begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then, Right at the end of the gospel, Mark chapter 15, all these different stories intended to lead us to 
the realization of who Jesus is, identifying Jesus correctly as the, as the Son of God. Mark chapter 15, verse 39, Jesus is on the cross and it's a centurion, a Roman pagan, not an Essene, not a Sadducee, not a Pharisee, not religious by the Israelite definition. A Roman pagan who gets it right. He stood facing Jesus. He saw in this way that he died. He breathed his life. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So throughout Mark's gospel, he's trying to get his readers, us today as we read it now, to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. And he does it with three basic movements. So the first movement, Jesus is around Galilee. The second movement, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. And the third movement, he's in Jerusalem. And this Mark chapter 7 is Jesus on the way where there's increasing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees are the religious leaders. And now they've come down from Jerusalem to spy on him and judge him. So they're judgmental. Pharisaism then, judgmental. Uh, but then also, and this really is most important for Mark in his description here, traditional. And you can see this uh, in um, verse 3. So, verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. He's going to emphasize this over and over again, this traditional Verse 4, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe. And as I say, we're just looking at the first four verses here where he contrasts authentic Christianity with Phariseeism. But I had some of the other verses, uh, asked for some of the other verses read out to set the context, partly so you can see this concern with the tradition is a key one for Mark. So verse 5, he, said, uh, he, he records the Pharisee saying, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And then uh, Jesus quotes uh, from Isaiah verse 7, a different word but the same idea, you're worshipping me in vain, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men, this human religious tradition. Or verse 8, you, have, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Or again, verse 9, the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. That you, so this traditional, judgmental, traditional is a key part of who the Pharisees were then. They, because of their concern for the law and keeping the law, they generated teaching and a body of tradition in addition to God's law that could act as a fence to protect you from breaking God's law. That's the passion behind it. And those other laws were viewed as equally authoritative. And it led to some ridiculous extremes. Most famously, most frequently quoted, the, the Pharisees had 39 different rules to protect you from working on the Sabbath. 
39 other things you had to do. So there's this traditionalism. Now, when we say tradition, we, we, we have our own traditions. Our family has our own traditions. Yesterday, I made myself a nice cup of tea, and it was traditional English tea. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a religious tradition that over time is so hallowed, so sanctified, that to break it seems as unthinkable as breaking what God says in His Word. So they're judgmental, they're traditional, and also, and this is then the washing part, they are concerned with the external. So uh, verse 2, it says, they saw that some of His disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, ritually impure. The washing isn't concerned with physical cleanliness, it's concerned with ceremonial cleanliness. Um, they were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then he, Mark describes their tradition. They, whenever they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And then uh, verse 4, the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And Mark's describing this because his original audience, he imagines, are primarily not familiar with the religious sensibilities of Israel at the time, so he needs to describe it for them, and it gives us an insight into it. Now, we don't know exactly all that they did with washing, but the likelihood is that their tradition is a facsimile similarity to the tradition that, that Jews over the hundreds of years and still today who follow this pattern, still uh, religious, those who follow the religious teaching of their rabbis still do. And the tradition is basically as follows. So you, what you do is you, you wash the dominant, you have a cup or a pot or some kind of vessel, and you wash the dominant hand first. And then if you're right-handed, it's the the right hand. If you're left handed, it'd be the left hand first. But you, you wash the dominant hand first, and then you pick up the pot, and then you wash the, the other hand, just pour water on it. And then you intone some kind of blessing or prayer, uh, the one that's used uh, traditionally. It, it, it goes like this Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. You sanctify us with your commandments, and the commandment regarding hand-washing. So there's this concern with the, with the external. Pharisees then. What about Pharisees now? I, I think that Mark, in his description here, isn't telling us about the Pharisees just so we can have a sort of historical understanding what the Pharisees used to do. He's telling us about the Pharisees because humans typically move towards Pharisaism can be religious, can be non-religious, 
Much of our so-called secular society is deeply embedded with various kinds of Pharisaism. Rules that you have to keep, judging you if you don't, a concern for the external, the system, but also can be religious. And as I say, Pharisaism tends, we don't think about it, because we, we don't do the work to understand what really is going on with this typical human tendency towards Pharisaism. We just think no one would be like that. But actually, when we understand it, it's typically popular. And the reason why is Pharisaism is attractive because it's attainable. Real Christianity is saying to us, what you need is something you cannot do. Outside of Christ, you're dead, and you need to be made alive. Only God can do that. You must come to Him and ask Him. But Pharisaism is attractive because it's attainable. You can wash your hands, but you cannot transform your heart. For that, you need Jesus. Well, how then do we apply this and think about this in a practical way today? Well, we need um, to, first of all, identify Pharisaism, not only then, but also now. External, traditional, judgmental. Well, external. I remember one uh, man I was discipling a few years ago who was put off coming to church because he had long hair. And the church people told him that he couldn't come to church with long hair. I was bemused when he told me this. Um, and I'm afraid somewhat um, sacrilegiously, as he told me this, I wondered out loud whether Jesus, uh, he was told he, he couldn't come to church with long hair because he didn't have a Christian haircut. And so I wondered out loud with this, this man, I said, I wonder... I, 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 I wonder whether Jesus had a Christian haircut. Probably not. Nothing against having short hair, but it's, it's an external thing. And we all know that church in the past, perhaps less now, maybe, but church in the past has has had all sorts of these sort of external things that, that can stop people finding the real thing. You, you can even have the same thing with washing. We think they're sort of ridiculous to be concerned about washing their hands. But, but don't, don't, we, don't we have some of the same potentialities? Uh, those of you who've been coming to college church for quite some time or uh, are familiar with the church, 
or members of the church will know that we baptize both babies and believers. And uh, I've worked in churches where they only baptize um, believers, and that's a, a perfectly reasonable way of doing it as well. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't be in a place where we're talking about water, the external. We shouldn't be in a place where a biblically-minded Baptist can't work for the progress of the gospel with a biblically-minded Presbyterian, or vice versa. I remember one person, I won't use their name, some of you would know who I'm referring to if I did, but a very well-known preacher had a child. He, he baptized uh, the child by sprinkling, and when the child grew up, this child wanted to go to a church where they baptized by immersion, and the only way this child could be a member of that church was to be immersed, and in, in order to avoid offense or difficulty or controversy, this child of this famous preacher was privately, if not secretly, baptized. Really? Water? I'm not saying that your opinion about baptism isn't significant. I have my own opinion. But there shouldn't be a fixation about the external. External, traditional. We think they're sort of ridiculous with their concern about the tradition of the elders from the past. But just think about it for a moment. Don't we have some of the same tendencies? We, we, uh, Calvin. What Calvin thinks. It, it can be like the trump card. Calvin says so-and-so. Now, we need to learn from our teachers. There are, uh, cited Augustine earlier. I'll mention other great teachers of the past, but we should learn from them, but they shouldn't be a trump card to, to finish the issue. That, that's God's Word. Calvin was so concerned that his fame would become misused in that sort of way that he made sure that no one knew exactly where he was to be buried so that his, his burial site didn't become pilgrimage. Calvin says, Luther, what he says, and it can, either, it can either attract people to it or alienate people. Or more contemporary uh, teachers, I won't mention their names because they're still alive, but uh, you can think of your own mind, whoever your famous contemporary Bible teacher is, what so-and-so says sort of finishes the issue. Should it? No. We should learn from such-and-such such preacher. But it shouldn't be authoritative in the same way God's Word is. And you find similar sort of things, dynamics of work in secular society with all these secular but really religious um, ideologies around today. Uh, some of them immersed around something called critical theory with, with its own gurus and its own approaches that are concerned with the external and, the t and, and we alienate people and external, traditional, judgmental. Define people as part of our club and it, or not part of our club, our group, rather than the, the bit, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Instead we have all this 
rancor and divisiveness and anger around judgmentalism and traditionalism, and it, it, but you begin to see how important it is that we define what it truly means to follow Jesus as not Phariseeism. Having identified it, then what do we then do? Well, then we need to reject it. And to that end, I can't do better than quote from Chuck Swindle. See, I can quote from teachers. Chuck Swindle, um, when he was um, in his early 70s, was an interview about Howard Hendricks. And Chuck Swindle, those of you of that generation used to listen to his teaching, will know that Chuck Swindle was a very prominent proponent of grace. And he was asked about legalism. And Chuck Swindle... In this interview, basically said this the trouble with the legalists is not enough people have confronted them and told them to get lost. And he said, I said I'm, I'm 72 now, what have I got to lose? He said, But seriously, legalism, legalists will drive people, real Christians away from your church. It's anti grace, and they're enemies of the faith. And then he said, other than that, I don't have any opinion. We need to reject it. Identify it, reject it. But then having rejected it, obviously then we need to follow the real thing. And that's what the next uh, the series is going to be about. And I won't explain it all now, but give you a little hint to it. It's going to be about God's Word rather than human tradition and internal transformation rather than external conformity. Let me close with a story. Uh, The first televised political commercial, I believe, was about Dwight Eisenhower And the slogan was the I like Ike slogan. And the advertising genius who came up with this first televised political slogan, the story goes about him that one uh, day, from New York City, one day he was walking down the streets in New York City with a friend of his, and he noticed on the sidewalk was a blind man begging with a sign next to him saying, I am blind, and a little tin can, but the tin can had very few coins in it. And the story goes that this advertising genius said to his friend, I guarantee you that I can dramatically increase the number of coins in that can by simply adding four words to his sign. And his friend said, oh, you, you can't do that. He said, okay, I'll, I'll show you. So the advertising um, uh, guy goes up to uh, the blind beggar, gets down next to him and talks to him for a little while and gets his permission to um, add some words to his sign. On the top of the sign, he has these four words. It 
is spring and I am blind. The amount of coins in the can just... Because now everyone realizes, I, I, I can see the flowers, I can see the sun, it's spring, but this man is blind. When we preach Jesus, we need to define Him as not, not Phariseeism. And then our worship of Him is renewed. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we uh, thank You that indeed following You is not Pharisaic. We pray, Lord, that we will follow Your Word and have the internal transformation of Your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.